Welcome back to Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Betseke, and I'm joined by the author himself, Cisco Ramos, and we are glad you came back. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you prefer. This week, we dive headlong into general best practices for setting up your syllabus. Cisco, are you ready to get this party started? Let's do this. I think it is a really appropriate place for us to start. I know that at the very beginning of every chapter, you have like a different quotation that you use. Mm -hmm. Um, And you pull this Brene Brown quotation. And I just, I really want you to kind of talk through one, what was your reason behind that? Mm -hmm. And two, like, what were you thinking when you were reading that Brene Brown quote the very first time you ever heard it? Well, absolutely. So I, um, so whenever we're establishing, um, these kind of experiences where students can actually discuss uh, issues where either A, there is no answer, or B, it's just still an open question. Um, inevitably, the word conflict comes up. And a lot of times people will say like, you know, I understand that, you know, conflict can emerge and it's something I really don't want to deal with, so I'm not going to do it. And a lot of times I think people, you know, I don't necessarily like the word conflict per se, but even if there's a tension, tension or conflict can be productive. And it's a very nice, subtle way of saying, you know, there is an opportunity in this experience um, where even contrasting viewpoints, when they meet in the middle, um, something can come out of that. It's a very Hegelian idea where you have thesis and antithesis equals synthesis. So that's the part of it again, where Really, it's not just a question of how do we have these conversations, but how do we build scaffolding around these conversations so that these kind of experiences can happen? So um, inevitably, the question, uh, the word conflict came up over and over and over again. And it's really, in my, in my opinion, just if it's going to be there and is an integral part of these kind of dialogues, how do we begin to think about um, this word and this notion of conflict in these conversations? Is it really something that's transformative? Is it something that we're trying to resolve? Um, is it something we're trying to avoid? But what is it about the role of conflict or tension within these um, within these discussions that can simultaneously on one hand be a source of I think on the teacher side, be a source of anxiety, yet at the same time, anxiety, because there is the unknown, there is a grappling with, you know, this can very easily go sideways. And on the other side of the coin, it's like, hey, um, the unknown part of this doesn't have to be a fearful experience or doesn't have to be a bad experience. Uh, And I think, um, as we'll talk about a little bit later, you know, one of the roles of being a teacher here is just being mindful of of one's emotional uh, intelligence as right. we're going through this exactly. experience, so that if exactly. um, you know in the after the development of this kind of scaffolding, um, you know how and where to intercede or how and where to frame or reframe certain directions, so that students get to a more productive place. So I think Brene Brown does this really, really well in um, in a lot of our work and is able to explain really, really complicated materials in a very digestible manner so that 
it is rooted in academic research, but is it's very much explained for a general audience. So I think that's the perfect way to start, um, not only establishing a framework, but I think asking the next question is, um, for educators, which is what is my role in this process? Right. So, so one, you've got to love a phenomenal communicator of any type, whether it be, you know, uh, a Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a phenomenal science communicator, mm. or a Brene Brown, who's a phenomenal, you know, uh, educational communicator, or really just communicator in general about a lot of different constructs. Um, and so, so I, I am wanting really, you know, to kind of root initially when we talk about establishing a framework for a classroom discussion, hmm. I think that that has to be birthed out of a lot of failure to get there. Um, yeah. Can you talk about, you know, sometimes <laughs> when, you know, you hadn't quite gotten to the place that a framework was something that you needed to be working from? Uh, maybe, you know, you had a conversation that was controversial, or, you know, it was a contentious discussion. And you didn't quite have a handle on establishing classroom norms. Can you can you kind of talk about that? Uh, I love starting with failure. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is, um, and I think this was in my in my early days, um, was not knowing how to integrate students into this process. Um, you know, oftentimes. And as we've said before, and as we'll probably iterate over and over again, I think the two most important elements within any any classroom are culture and trust. And oftentimes when I was deliberating, I just didn't include students into this process. So I would come up with something by myself um, that sounded great in my head or on paper or um, as a series of exercises or activities I had developed or a series of readings that I was thinking about assigning. I would show up, whether it was the next day, next week, potentially even the next semester, um, and implement what um, what I thought would work. Mm. And it just didn't. It just right. didn't because um, my conception of what culture meant, of what trust meant, of what input could look like wasn't in dialogue with the practical realities of the classroom. Just wasn't. Um, right. And by practical realities, uh, I'm talking about with the individual students, I'm talking about um, basic forms of uh, democratic voting. So, for example, if we come up with certain rules, um, do students vote on them? Do they agree on whether it is to uh, hear voices that we don't uh, traditionally hear? Well, what happens? Here's another example. If a student um, hogs a conversation, or what happens if, um, you know, if there has to be some form of, uh, I would, you know, some kind of peer sanctioning, like, what does that look like if we're establishing norms uh, in a classroom where oftentimes we like to focus on participation, but not necessarily on what are our obligations and responsibilities towards one another. And if somebody is not living up to those obligations and responsibilities, then what? Um, right. So that's right, the right. part where, again, I didn't consult, uh, at, least, at least initially, I didn't consult students in that process. And it's just something, you know, I, I learned the hard way is, is the nicest way I can put it. Did they give you feedback in real time to basically say like, hey, we don't buy into this thing? I They did that privately. They did that oh. privately. And that's where I give folks. Um, that's a, a lot of, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, but, but I will say this, right. It, it's, um, it's a double-edged sword, right? So on one hand, right. it's sort of a, um, a recognition and an awareness of, um, shortcomings on, on my preparation. And it wasn't a lack of work. I think it was a lack of, um, of the contours of how I was conceptualizing, um, this process and who was involved. Right. The other part of it too, that is, I think a positive one is that students really did feel comfortable in telling me. Well, and that was the thing I was going to say, like that tells me a lot about the classroom itself that you've established that I would much prefer you to be honest and open with me about a displeasure that you have rather than to kind of keep quiet to yourself and just kind of muddle through this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to muddle through this thing. And, you know, I, I think by involving students really, you know, in addition to giving them a voice, it was giving them um, a say in what was really at stake here. Right, exactly. I, th I think that was the big one um, that I learned the hard way. Uh, the first class I can tell you that where this, um, where I had this learning experience was when I was a graduate student at Indiana. And I taught a class on immigration and education for undergraduates. Great mm -hmm. class, developed it, reading materials, syllabus, all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was eye-opening. In, in certain ways, it was assuming uh, basic historical moments that I thought we all shared in common. So one of the most... Um, I think at the time, alarming, and right now I think it's an interesting example. I was talking about the emergence of the Berlin Wall, and students had no idea what the Berlin Wall was. Oh. Yeah. What so was you, this? This was, I, I'll be sufficiently vague, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but th this was, I believe, 2011, so nine years ago. So okay. it was, you know, it's these these basic points around um, moments in our in our collective um, imagination that we might share, right? So that was one where I had a an entire lesson planned around the purpose of walls and why do walls exist whenever we are delineating borders or boundaries and what those walls signify. And I used as one of the case studies in class, we were talking about the Berlin Wall, silence. And I was trying to explain, hey, this thing between East and West Germany, the Cold War, I'm showing photos. And there's this great video that's still on YouTube where David Hasselhoff is singing in the early 90s, late 80s at the wall talking about a united Germany. And it was this big, huge historical moment that was broadcast on live TV. They had no clue. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, they had no clue. And, you know, again, it's one of these uh, assumptions that sounds great when it's done in isolation, but I assume that there was a common point of reference that we could look towards yeah. or that we as a class could look towards and it just fell apart right in front of me. Mm. So in that moment, I, I guess, like, I would imagine that you went through a brief moment of panic. <laughs> like, because I mean, it's your lesson plan, you've, you've built this, the, the, the whole thing has to work, predicated on this one big pivot, right? And if mm -hmm. they don't get the pivot, then we're not we're off course, we're not, <laughs> we're not ending where we need to end. So what did you do? 
So I think like a lot of people it took a step back and I'm having to explain and I found myself explaining uh, the Cold War, how it came into wow. being. Um, and now I'm, I'm going to say, to be fair, I think a lot of the explanation was having to lay the groundwork for what people are not taught in schools. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and, and you know, you can pick up a high school textbook, you can pick up a middle school textbook. It's usually very triumphant for all matters related to World War II. Um, you know, there's not that much discussion about the Korean War. Vietnam right. is thought of in a certain light and presented in a certain light. Um, and communism is always, at least when I was coming up, very much as um, as a monolith. It was the Soviet Union, good, bad, right, wrong. Um, zero nuance, yeah. zero nuance. Exactly. And there exactly. was a very limited understanding of um, the actors who participated in um, these events. And so when I was presenting uh, this great image of a young man in the late 80s taking a hammer to the wall, and this was somebody on the western side of the wall, um, mm. I had to stop in that moment, take a step back and explain as as best as I could, just a broad overview of um, not only how long and large the wall was, what right. were some of the forces that um, on either side of the wall, but just to explain and to give a sense of the role that physical reminders play in that experience. Like, what is it about a wall that can simultaneously serve as a point of exclusion, a wall that can also serve as right. a receptacle right. for people's projections in right. a lot of ways. Like we pick inanimate objects and we throw our insecurities, fears, aspirations, all of that stuff towards it. Like, what is it about this that really tells the story about us? Right. Right. Exactly. So, so that was, that was the part of it in that moment, just taking a ginormous step back and having to explain and fill in some gaps and answer a couple of questions. Now, granted this was in Indiana. So, um, you know, again, how I think where people, the degree to which people have to take a step back and explain is going to vary by geography. So right. what I had to do in Indiana, again, it was just explaining a little bit more about um, how quickly the wall went up. Um, the Brandenburg Gate, there's these beautiful images that are in black and white. There's old videos that show um, people fleeing from the east to the west. Um, so giving people a sense of it was a very real thing. Like, yes, it was just a wall pile right. of bricks with some concrete. You've got barbed wire on the West. There's a whole lot of spray painting and I'd call it street art. Some people call it graffiti, but you have a lot of street art being, uh, painted and, and that was the scenario for, for several decades and the lived right. realities and experiences of people on either side of the wall was very uh drastically different drastically, drastically different. different and then it's taking the next step with this with uh in class of you know is there anything that we've learned so far that can be applied to different settings so again it was sort of mm. taking a step back being cognizant that okay there is um an, an, an educational and knowledge gap here and that's both right. good and bad for very different reasons the question then for me in that moment was okay how do i explain this how do I then pivot to try to link this to something that students know present day so that while we couldn't necessarily talk about that, 
example, we could talk about the examples or the lessons that that, ex- that example provided on something else around which was in students um, um, that they understood. Right. So in theory, you kind of demonstrated and modeled uh, what an in-class framework of sorts looked like. You started driving a very particular direction. You mm. realized everybody wasn't with you. You backpedaled so they could come along with you. And then I'm assuming, you know, like you said at the very end, they were able to root it in something that they understood. I'm sure there were examples that were given that they were like, oh, that must be like, and then they named some pop cultural thing that they knew. Mm. Um, And then everybody probably was more or less together, give or take. Yeah, I say more or less because um, I think there were 17 students in this class. So 15 out of 17, 16 out of 17, but it's the vast majority of students in the class. It was something that they could draw upon and something they could talk about. Right. And I think, right. again, this speaks to um, a common experience that I think a lot of educators have where what becomes the point of entry for conversation? Is it really through literature? Is it really through pop culture? Is it really through um, common experience? And in this case, um, I think at the time this was a post-2001 uh, um, U.S. society. Oh, wow. That, that was the big one. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, you know, as, as I mentioned last time, I'm from the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. It was not the Southern Wall. It was more um, this ex- this collective experience around 9-11 and the, the reshaping of American society as a result. That was very much um, the focus of that conversation and applying what I thought we were going to talk about um, with the example of the Berlin Wall, was then applied to post 9-11 America. Right. Okay. So so actually, this, this you, you've done a, a really kind of fanciful job of <laughs> pseudo describing what the role of the instructor in all of this was because you were analyzing yourself. Hmm. But like if you were going to explicitly lay that out, you know, and you were to use that as a, a case study for yourself, looking back and going, mm, that was not the best moment theoretically, but it was also really wonderful. There were failures and successes. You know, what was the role that you felt you played in getting students over the finish line so that you could have the conversation that you needed to have? Getting students over the finish line. Ah, it's a good one. Um, you know, so the role I, I, I take in a lot of these discussions is I facilitate and I provide scaffolding and I provide structure and how I go about doing that very uh, pragmatically is knowing that a um, I give students voice. Um, I make clear deline- delineations when in, in, in discussions um, and usually at the very beginning of class, I'll write a series of things on the um, on the whiteboard or the chalkboard, you know, what is a, is this a fact? Is this an opinion? What's the evidence? What's at stake? And why do I, um, what is it about that, about X that's being presented that makes me, um, say this, right? And so as we're going along and, a, and if a student says something, I'm just facilitating, okay, well really like what makes you say that? Can you tell me the facts behind what you're claiming? Um, in your opinion, what's what's really at stake here? So part of it, again, on the surface, that's what I'm doing. What I'm really trying to drive at is to help students reason. 
and to help them understand what are the underlying dynamics that are informing the conclusions and the claims that I'm making. And I think, and, and part of this, again, and you, you took my class, so you can tell me how this, this worked out or didn't, um, but it's, it's it, uh, truly, but being able to, to take something that we're talking about and can I break it up into its constituent parts? And if so, I can do, go ahead. No, no, no. I just, it was really interesting that you started to talk about that because if I'm not mistaken, I took your class during the Kavanaugh hearings. Yes, I think yes, that's yes, yes. what was going on. So we were having conversations about you were asking those exact questions, like because we were making claims about you know, uh, was the just, does the calendar qualify as a you know a verifiable or justifiable document to prove historically where you were or weren't? Like we were having conversations about those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, and you were you were like, okay, we have to actually define you know, in this discussion, you know, what we are deeming fact and what we are deeming opinion. Um, And then before you even let us get into that, you actually made us stop. And I remember this, you made us stop and decipher what we were willing to accept as communally understood or conjecture or whatever. So like you literally had us chart out, like, what are the things that will, that will facilitate this conversation that we're about to have? Um, and then we had to all, it was like a vote process. We had to democratically agree on it. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think there was some compromise that happened, if I'm not mistaken. I, I forget exactly what it was, mm-hmm. but there was one or two things that I remember one of um, one of my classmates wanted and another one kind of just was like, I disagree with that, but I, I'm willing to get give you that if you give me this. Like mm-hmm. there was some kind of back and forth. Uh, and then um, from there, I mean, we were able to actually have the conversation from there. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was that was one of the points. I mean, you've heard me say time and time again, both on, on and offline, when we come to a consensus about certain things, consensus, agreement, common understanding, we have to negotiate somehow. Right. Things have to ne- negotiate. We have starting positions to get to where we think is a middle somewhere that can serve as a glue it's that process um, in real time. So if, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, what is a fact, what is evidence, um, what is an opinion, it's laying down, okay, here's an objective definition on on something. Um, if we're talking about what is a reliable source, mm-hmm. uh, Mm-hmm. You know, truly, like, like, what is the definition? What kind of criteria are we going to develop? Um, because the, really, the goal here in this, in that context, is how do we get to a common understanding? So we got to give somehow, somewhere. Right. Um, and what does that look like? Not in abstract, but truly, like, where where are these lines that oftentimes in dialogues, or actually that under that underpin dialogues, debates, and discussions? Where are they? What do they look like? Um, and do we agree on them? And oftentimes, again, it's making a lot of these implicit dynamics very explicit and putting them front and center so that um, so that we have a common we have common roots, right. a common center. Right. So I have to ask you because yeah. we keep talking about center. Mm. Do we live in a society? now mm-hmm. where everything is a dichotomy mm-hmm. 
or should we push? Well, I guess maybe, maybe let me rephrase the question. Should we accept in society now that everything is a dichotomy or should we be pushing for far more nuance and that there are, there are different shades of gray that we can define along the way. Um, but maybe they don't stay on a two pointed, you know, left and right. Maybe they're, they fluctuate, maybe they're spherical, maybe they are three dimensional. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. How would you, how would you respond to that? So, so one of my, I'll, I'll respond academically and then I'll break it down um, <laughs> practically. So one of my favorite, um, he is a legal scholar and a philosopher. His name is Boaventura de Sosa Santos. And this is um, a gentleman that I had the pleasure of meeting when I was a graduate student. It was one of the highlights of graduate school. Um, he went to Indiana. I, I got a picture with him. and <laughs> You're so nerdy no, out right now. <laughs> no, I, I am. There are certain people where it's like you read their stuff, whoever it is. And it just says, it just has a massive, um, just influences you in right. very, very deep and fundamental ways. And, and I, you know, he, just, I emailed him afterwards cause he asked, Hey, can you send me a copy of the picture? And he sent, he responded by saying, um, after I emailed him, he was like, you know, thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. Yada, yada, yada. And he said his, his name was Boa as opposed to Boa Ventura de Sosa Santos. And, and it's one of the, like you meet somebody and it's like, mm. what do I call you? Like, and he's like, mm -hmm. just call me Boa. And I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, but with him, he's got two, um, oh, two ideas that have always stuck with me. And one of them is called critical nouns that, Right now, for most uh, social issues, we don't have the language to describe what it is that we're trying to really get at, or and the language that we do have narrows our political and social imagination. And so it's thinking more as focusing on the language that we use, developing what he calls critical nouns, so that we can expand the horizon of possibilities. Mm. The second one which you probably heard me allude to not too long ago, is this whole idea of learned ignorance. Mm -hmm. That our ignorance in society is structured and manufactured. It's not by accident. So the first question is, you know, you mentioned a dichotomy, left, right, up, down. I, I would say focus on the language. What kind of language we use absolutely matters because that informs what is even acceptable or allowable in the first place. Right. Right. And so oftentimes we collectively, and I would say I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this um, on occasion of narrowly defining or framing something or being worried about the incomplete nature of how I go about discussing something. Because, you know, oftentimes as a, as a teacher, as a scholar, as somebody who's just trying to live everyday life, honestly, you know, right. there's such a focus on you know, what is the final product? And this approach is very much like, no, truly, what is the process by which we get to a product? We don't know what the product or endpoint will be, but if we focus on the process, um, whatever that endpoint slash goal ultimately is, um, we know that it's going to be something different than, um, hopefully something different than a, the bifurcation that we're all experiencing, right. left, right, up, down. Um, you know, do you support this? Do you support that? It becomes a yes or no. Um, 
experience that can devolve pretty quickly when in reality, um, it doesn't ask the underlying, well, truly, if we take a step back on a certain issue, um, you know, can we talk about who's involved? Can we talk about mm-hmm. underlying relationships that might exist? Can we really talk about um, some some of the dynamics that we'd like to have? Or even, honestly, what are some of the organizing principles? Um, is it really empathy? Is it really care? Um, does it necessarily matter if if somebody's right, you know? Because there's there are certainly occasions where whatever somebody can technically be right, but being right, the trade-off can sometimes be, you know, a negative experience um, or a negative outcome for someone else. And depending on this the right. circumstance, it's being right is actually how do I say this? Sometimes you- you're you're when you're right, sometimes you're actually wrong. And sometimes when you're wrong, you're actually right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's, it gets very much back to uh, the language in the way in which we frame things. Like if we go back to the critical nouns feature, you know, just because I can say the thing in the space doesn't necessarily mean that that's the thing that needed to be said at that moment in time. One. Yeah. And two, uh, just because I know that that is actually the way the facts of the situation went doesn't mean that I am. And if I go back to, um, to, to some of the words that you've written here, as far as like focusing on the student, doesn't necessarily mean I'm focused on the people in the room at the time that I'm saying the thing that I'm saying. Um, and so if, if you are an instructor and you're trying to always focus on content and on students, um, as a way to, to navigate some of these more, uh, potentially divisive conversations. And I don't, I don't, I hate to use the word divisive because I think that, or divisive, uh, um, I hate to, you know, I hate to frame it as a either or, or that one of the things Mm -hmm. that you may be saying is is in some way, shape or form um, searing to another person. But uh, I would imagine that if you're focusing kind of taking, you know, the, this, this theory that, you know, Boa has put into the world and you are also trying to kind of combine that with, the um the idea of being able to focus on content and focus on the student i would imagine that you end up in a place where your students feel safe enough to be honest if we go back to your uh initial failure discussion um but also trustworthy enough or trust the space enough to to actually interject appropriately can you kind of talk about you know times where you've seen that happen for yourself? Yeah. So you said the right word there, um, trust. And in these conversations, um, the thing that's always at the forefront of my mind, um, is that it's ultimately not about me. It's truly not about me. And I think that's something that Mm -hmm. is very hard for, um, a lot of people there are broader explanations as to why I think that's the case. But one of the general messages that um, people receive, particularly in the United States, is it really is about you. There's an emphasis of the individual that, yes, you matter. You should, you know, let your voice be known. Um, and at the same time, the I think the hard part is, in this case, it really is about the student. It really is about the ideals you're trying to instantiate in that classroom. 
And I think ultimately it is about um, getting at these much harder and slipperier terms that are very easy to say, but very hard to live, right? Mm -hmm. Culture, trust, reciprocity, questions of fairness, uh, participation, uh, belonging is another word. And, you know, and I, and I, and I think frankly, getting back to this notion of, you know, critical nouns, um, and other words that I think have been, um, unfairly, uh, put to the margins, right. You know, questions like care and empathy. I th actually think care and empathy is a pretty radical act. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it just, you know, when you say those kind of words, um, people are like, yeah, 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 that, that, that's great. Care, empathy, got it, moving on. I'm like, no, 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 no. Do you know what that means? <laughs> right. Right. Or exactly. what it looks like. And so you have these conflicting messages between, you know, what's floating in the culture, what's floating in discourse and what I'm trying to put forward in the classroom. Um, so in some sense for students at the very least, it's, it's putting practical ways that they can have a say both individually and collectively, because I know as a teacher, I'm trying to navigate these two lines um, and ways that they can vote on um, um, how these conversations can unfold. And so for me, like those are the two most important things where um, once this happens, um, you know, we come up with rules, we come up with, with organizing principles around which we, we treat each other. Um, we define and demarcate these lines so that as we're going along, we have something to point back to. Right. Um, and, and we've all, at least I can't say this. We've all, I have certainly been, and this is me taking ownership of language. I have certainly been in the room where I've talked, uh, or given a lecture on something. Um, and my walking into the room that day, I thought, you know, students were going to have an understanding of a b and c mm -hmm. um the way the discussion unfolded it really wasn't about a b and c the the actual um meat and potatoes of the conversation and what they really got out of it were d e and f right and to give you a very concrete example going back to that immigration and education class um one of my favorite writers his name is luis alberto urrea and he's got this phenomenal book called the devil's highway and he, there is about a seven to 10 page uh, discussion. Now, granted, I haven't read this book in some years. So this is from memory about what happens to the human body in the desert, right? And he's explaining these different stages of the body breaking down. And I'm trying to organize this discussion around, you know, truly, can we, as best as we can, get ourselves in the position of empathizing with individuals who don't know who we don't know that are experiencing these dynamics mm. right um again this question and notion of how do we instantiate care and empathy in our conversations and in reality what ended up happening through uh, a, a back and forth some questions posed um was wasn't you know what I hope they would get out of it, but it was trying to establish the premise that we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, even if we don't know them, because mm -hmm. it's a very old take on, on literature where in the particular lies, the generalizable where students from, um, Evansville, Indiana, which is, I believe is Southwest of Bloomington, um, could say that, you know what? I, 
I read what's on the page and I'm not quite sure I understand because I haven't been to the Southwest, but what I do understand uh, based on my experiences are the local manufacturing plant closing down. Right, right. And it, and it wasn't a conversation about the human body per se, but it, was, it ended up being a conversation about how um, the economic welfare of certain communities began to atrophy. And so you had this parallel discussion exactly. of like, you know, we, we couldn't relate to this, but we could certainly talk about, um, you know, manufacturing going away. Right. And what that meant for people locally. And it right. wasn't in, in any kind of um, sort of language that you might see on TV. It was very much, you know, rooted in experience. You know, Christmas was different. Thanksgiving was a little bit different. People slowly began to change or some people had to leave. Right. Um, and what right. that meant for the fabric of, of our community. Um, right. So that was a part of it again where, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was difficult, but at the same time, like what we got out of it was unexpected. And I think a far richer understanding of, um, what empathy and care could be through these common experiences. It's funny that you, and you have to forgive me. I'm, I'm going to hmm. go ahead and date myself a little bit in a moment <laughs> for care it. and empathy. And you said, do you know what that means? All I heard was like the weeby, you know, independent, except like C-A-R-E-M-E. -E. Like, do you know what that means? Like literally, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's this, this moment in time where I feel like we have to, I feel in some ways we're having to actively, you know, like re-ascribe what those principles are. Like we thought we knew mm -hmm. what care and empathy were. Um, and I don't necessarily know that everybody does know what that means, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, being able to take it into a space where you are thinking about something that is more ethereal, like the body breaking down in a desert, like that mm -hmm. is a, a non, um, everyone can make comments about it and then come back to, okay, you know, I see how that's impacting, you know, uh, another body, another body being the economic body of a space and a time and a place. And then how would that impact other people? Like you're, you are actively, you know, constructing an activity that led students to where you'd like them to be. Um, even though the answer didn't necessarily end up the way you thought it was going to. Uh, yeah. And I guess in, in, in a large way, it allowed students to make up their own minds. So um, I, I'm very interested, you know, there's got to be times where students present data uh, to you or you present data to students that kind of flies in the face of facts or a set of, a set mm -hmm. of beliefs. Um, you know, I, I know that there are typically a couple different responses to that. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, talk about, talk about situations like that. I'm sure you may have had a student who was like, you know, well, you know, this economic adjustment happening is not the end of the world. It's not as bad as you thought it was like, um, or, you know, or they were devastated. Like, Talk mm -hmm. about kind of how students are responding and how you are having to uh, to posture yourself to continue to be in that care and empathetic facilitator role. Sure. That's a really great question, um, because I think, you know, what you're suggesting, if I'm, if I'm reading you right, is, you know, on, on one hand, are we taking the same information to the same discussion, right? Exactly. So, so and, right. and what are our common points of reference? So sometimes you mentioned data, you know, in my world, when, when I say the word data, we're talking about facts, figures, statistics, 
Um, people love to throw around the word R squared. What's the P value? Is it reliable? Yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, and in, and in other cases and in other contexts, um, you know, it, it really is about culture mm. or in some cases the foundation is religion. And so it ends up becoming an experience where, you know, some folks are throwing out facts and figures. Some folks are throwing around. Um, religion, some folks are putting forward um, uh, culture. So the question really becomes in my mind, are you really using the same bits of information, the same common origin to talk about the same thing? Mm -hmm. um, and, and oftentimes, at least in some of the experiences I've had, the, the answer is absolutely no. People would take data to, and I'm going to use this word um, just because it's coming to mind, but they would take it to, they would take it to a culture fight. And they would show up and they would throw out facts and figures. And of course, somebody's like, yeah, that, that's great. I don't care. Right. Right. Um, so there was this sense of like, OK, we're in the same room. We're talking, but we're coming from very different spaces and there is no uh, common bridge. I'm only going to use data to make my point. And in this case, I'm only bringing in culture slash lived experience to make my point. And so it's this dynamic of we're talking past each other using different mediums and different languages um, in a way that it's sort of, yeah, it, it makes sense now. Yeah, this isn't going to go anywhere anytime soon. You're going to say you're right. This other person can go to their corner and say they're right and nothing gets done at the right. end of the day. Right. You just exactly. spend a lot of time and energy and um starting to sound a lot about starting to sound a lot similar to uh i think that place they call capitol hill in washington dc yeah yeah just a little bit and i and you know and and that's that's part of it like we're using very 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 different languages um you know in and i've and i've had students truly um in the various institutions that i've taught at who um, get to the same place using very different means. I've had students mm. who were um, raised in evangelical households who um, would primarily rely on religious sources and texts who were very um, progressive and mm. arrived at notions of fairness and equality through the Bible. Um, mm. Jesus was poor. I believe and I see sort of this example that's being set forth, who am I to say? Um, and I've had students, again, through um, through data, through numbers, um, arrive at the conclusion that I'm, of, you know, I'm looking around and seeing what's going on, and this just isn't right. Um, so that's the part of it, I think, where there is a bit of unpredictability um, in some of these conversations. And I think the hard part for a lot of educators and please feel free to interject, Michael, um, is, you know, the, um, ambiguity or the uncertainty as to where we're going to arrive. And right. I think that is very much rooted, you know, when you're a teacher, when you're an educator, professor, there is, uh, you know, this implicit assumption and expectation that you are the purveyor and knower of all knowledge, which, I mean, come on, like, right, you know, right. that's, that's a heavy, 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 um, burden. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Burden. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, Hey, I, I, I'm just an individual and right. I, I'm doing the best I can with what I got. Um, and I think that's something that, 
Um, I think a lot of people were told that you have to know all the answers, you have to do this, you have to do that. And in reality, um, you know, we're all trying to get to the same place. We have different uh, ways of getting there because we're human. You know, we have uh, limited faculties in a lot of ways. And frankly, like our students are going to ask questions where the answer is um, uncertain. Right. And so then it becomes like, well, what is my role in this um, in this experience? And that's why I say facilitate as best we can. If there are questions and this happens to me all the time, if there are questions that are asked and I truly do not have an answer, um, you know, that's a that's a fabulous question. Let me write it down and I'll get back to us because I think it's worth discussing and at least acknowledging, I think, what I don't know in in the classroom you know two things one it runs counter to i think how a lot of people are trained and i think b being able to say we don't know um does add credit credibility in the eyes of your students because right. at least you're being honest and right. if you follow up with us to talk about this area that was unexplored in a previous conversation it only adds and i think enriches the experiences in ways that I think, um, are more democratic, I think are more deliberative. And I, I think take the heavy burden off of educator shoulders of having to be this all knowing purveyor that right, exactly, it just, it's not exactly. gonna happen. Well, and, and I think ultimately, uh, it also allows students to come along at their own pace. Mm. Um, because when a student gets the opportunity to be the expert in the room on something, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I play very poorly on several instruments. And so, <laughs> you know, go on. <laughs> if we're having a conversation about musicianship, um, I am not going to be the expert, even though I am, you know, a sound designer and I record audio regularly, you know, mm. I am not going to be the expert on uh, how to play I don't know, a trumpet, but I'll tell mm -hmm. you my expert opinion on where to put the mic to record that trumpet. Mm -hmm. Those two things aren't the same. Um, and there is something to be said about empowering a student to feel like the expert in the room in that moment, because they were far more willing to, to have an opinion and to share mm -hmm. facts and data that they actually know that may help another student get to a place where it is you know, a commonality, like we together mm -hmm. got here and we now both agree on whatever it is. Yeah. It took me a second and I had to go around, as my daddy used to say, had to go from my head to my behind to get to my elbow. But I, I, I got here. <laughs> yeah, I got here. <laughs> um, I'm stealing that saying. That's, please, thank please your dad do. for me. Please, please do. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, I think that, you know, one of the other elements that we have to you know, talk about, I think would be irresponsible if we didn't, is for students that use different means to arrive at different places. You mm -hmm. know, there's going to be a moment in time where you have done all the all the hoops and all the jumping and all the listening and all the facilitating, and a student isn't going to get there. And yeah. I think that is partially due to, you know, human nature's ability to make very, um, very stalwart ideas concrete. Um, you know, if, if you believe that another person's, you know, a lifestyle in your mind is just that, then you will never be able to close the gap on certain things. And it's going to take, I think, 
other experiences. And I, I, I want to borrow from marketing in this moment and say, yeah. you know, we talk about in the field of marketing, there's a whole lot of discussions about the number of touches that it takes to, to convert a sale. You know, yeah. I think it's what seven or eight touches or something of that nature. And like, you may not be the person who makes that, you know, bright eyed student, even bright eyed, you know, more bright eyed, like you might not mm. be the person, but you may present or other individuals within your classroom may present ideals that change that students, you know, position enough to, mm. um, to be receptive later to the idea yeah. of someone else's humanity in a way that you just weren't expecting. So I think we have, we have to talk about that. I mean, yeah, Cisco, like, you know, I'm sure you've had conversations that have, that have erupted even in just establishing norms in the classroom, you know, that didn't, that, that effectively set you up to go, okay, this is going to be a little bit, you know, tougher a climb, but we're going to do it, mm -hmm. but it's still going to be tough. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there's a whole bunch of things that, that we can unpack with what you said. Um, I think the first one is, you know, there's again, the issue, I think from the perspective of the educator and teacher is like, truly, what can I control? Um, how students understand, interpret, or the conclusions they arrive at, we can't necessarily control that. Um, I think that's obvious, but is worth saying and making explicit. Agreed. Agreed. And I think the central question here is, you know, what does it really take to, and, and I'm not suggesting anyone do this in the classroom, but I think the broader question is, what does it really take to change someone's opinion or to change someone's mind? And mm. we don't, we collectively research don't really have a good answer to that one. You know, I think as, as you mentioned, I think it's the, the rule of seven or the rule of nine in advertising. Um, but I think the biggest educator is life, right? We, we have these experiences, we construct moments. Um, we can do as much as we can in terms of exposing students to, to different, um, to different thoughts, to different ideas, to ask and have them grapple with uh, difficult questions. Um, we can certainly set up moments where, you know, we talk about what is an opinion, what is a fact, how do we arrive at certain points? We can talk about the, the, um, the ambiguous, sometimes ambiguous nature of what that endpoint is. If there really is an endpoint, some people would make mm. the argument that really this is just a long ongoing process that is really about change and continuation. And it's very difficult to delineate between the two. Um, but I think, you know, that what, what we just said is, you know, I think a lot of folks, um, a lot of students, is what is it? What does it take to change someone's opinion? What does it take to change somebody's mind? And oftentimes, and um, you know, in a lot of my writings and a lot of these conversations I've had, is that people really have uh, two responses. Um, oh, man, I'm I'm exhaling because it again, it, it's it's difficult, right? Because you want right. something, but you can't. You have to give somebody the space and the volition to yes. do it. Yes, um, you should say that, that again. It, you should give people the space and the volition, the space and the volition. Um, you know, pe people, you know, I've spoken to colleagues who are in social psychology, but people either double down on what it is that they believed or their conclusions, or um, they pick up the pieces of, of this newfound knowledge to create something new. And I think that's the hard part because at the end of the day, you have to give people the space and the volition to change. 
and and I, and I say change for the better to change their mind to change their opinion um and that's hard and the other part of it that i think um a lot of people struggle with and we've alluded to it is that it's a really really slow process it's a really right. really slow process that um has a lot of people involved not just within the classroom amongst their peers the readings um but with a lot of people outside the classroom um family members uncles, aunts, um, uh, people that they might look up to, whether that's in pop culture or somewhere else. Um, but it's a slow process. And I think that's, right. that's part of the challenge because, um, again, I sometimes, and I can imagine this might be relatable to a lot of people feel very impatient. Um, right. but I have to sit there to remind myself to be patient because I need to give someone this space and I have to give them the agency to, right. um, to change. Well, and, and you in saying that reminds me of, you know, the sea turtle uh, birthing process. I'm sure people have heard this story a billion times before. But, you know, it's really difficult to watch sea turtles be born because it's such a struggle for them to come out of the sand and what have you. Uh, yeah. Brief background, mother sea turtles come lay their eggs deep in the sand. It's like a foot or so down, uh, mm. covers them up and then goes into the water. And like, that's the end of, of seeing their, their children. Um, and then these eggs crack and the sea turtle babies have to dig out of, from underneath like a foot of sand. And oftentimes, you know, the mother had to find a really safe spot. So that's far back from, you know, the shore um, or, or a decent, set, a decent way back. So now once they manage to, you know, crown, they manage to then, you know, basically claw their way to the beach or to the, to the water. Um, yeah. and they have to avoid being eaten by, you know, all means of, of, of predators. So, but mm. if they can get there, if they can get there, they can live a long, prosperous life. And it is the act of getting to the water that literal muscle building moment in time that gives them the strength to survive swimming and they're able yeah. to go on. But if you were to help them along any, any particular way, they would drown when they get there. Yeah. So yeah, that, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just saying, so that just the patience feature, I think, you know, you talk about the, the, there's a lot more that's happening under the surface. If you give that mm -hmm. space. Well, you know, and, and I think of this, um, you know, uh, in talking with my own family uh, and with um, people who I really respect, who are who are parents, you know, what, a common theme that thing that I'll hear from them, you know, you know, what is, what is something that, you know, really surprised you in being a parent? And it's sort of one of the themes that inevitably comes up is, I hope I did a good enough job. You know, that what I was trying to teach my kid stuck. And, you know, it. I think for a lot of people, that's where the, the rubber meets the road when they go to college. And I think in this case, it's that kind of, um, I think that relates here mainly because as a, as a teacher and as an educator, you hope um, what you're putting forward sticks. Mm -hmm. even though you can't control how it's interpreted, internalized, or put to use. And I think that's the hardest part where it can sometimes feel like you're watching a plant grow and it takes ages and ages and ages. Right. Um, 
and the outcome is absolutely uncertain. And one of my favorite sayings is, um, is we'll see. Mm. Is, is absolutely, is, is this a good thing? We'll, we'll see. Time will tell. Is this a bad thing? I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, because in the moment, sometimes things that we think are right, give it a couple, give it some time. It turns out to be absolutely wrong because experience right. and time, um, give us more insight into that kind of, a. um, yeah, give this give this insight into that kind of an answer and things that are considered wrong in the moment turn out to be right further down the line. And there's plenty of examples from history. Um, you know, one one that just comes to mind. Sorry, I'm very, I'm just talking off the top of my head. So if if you need to rein me back in, please do it. Um, you know, but to, to give you an example, you know, one of the things that I was heavily involved in organizing for the graduate school here at Duke was. Um, the series of conversations about race and bias. And one of the, our first talk was by, um, by my boss, uh, Paul, Dr. Um, Paula McLean, who's both the Dean of the graduate school, as well as the vice provost for graduate education. And we're talking about desegregation. And if you take, you know, um, um, if you look back historically, um, at least within the U S in the 19th century, you know, desegregation was considered, you know, normal standard practice, right? And it wasn't until, you know, the mid 20th century that that normal standard practice, people started to ask really difficult questions, um, both in terms of everyday life, but I think more, more central to this specific conversation through the legal system. Uh, I think the Menendez case happened in, in the, the 1940s. You have the famous Brown decision in the 50s. Um, and so then you have, again, very much an opening up of truly what are our values? What does it mean to be equal? Right. It used to mean uh, right. separate, separate but equal. Well, what does integration look like? Um, right. And I think um, the way that I can sort of think about applying these lessons to classroom practice, um, you know, one of the questions that is at the center of this guidebook and is something that I keep front and center of my mind almost every single day is, you know, are we reproducing the very conditions we're working to transform? Mm. Because a lot of times we'll enact something. We don't give it enough time to mature, to take on a life of its own and hopefully, um, you know, carry on the interesting work that was, um, that started somewhere else, but take it to a different space so that it can do something interesting on its own. Um, that, that to me, I think is, um, essential, absolutely essential for this kind of stuff. And, you know, in the classroom, we can talk about, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I'm just teaching, you know, if it's, if you're in K through 12, you know, Monday through Friday, if you're in college, maybe if you're on a block schedule, two days a week, um, maybe it's a once a week, uh, course, um, right. but that, that's the kind of, that's the way that I have to understand this kind of work is that, um, I can introduce ideas and structure experiences. And my, my deepest hope is that, um, this kind of work takes on another life in a productive way in a space that I myself can't or won't be able to access, or I might not even be, um, am not able to even imagine that kind of space because the student who I'm working with or the colleagues that I'm working with take it and run with it and make it their own. Um, that's my biggest yeah. hope. And that's sort of what forces and encourages me to be patient when I really don't want to be patient sometimes. Well, and, and I think that is even 
a really, I mean, let's just say that's a really great segue into the conversation surrounding the development of what that classroom and what those theories and ideas are going to be that you're going to hopefully be able to seed along the way. You know, the the development of a syllabus goes a long way in mm-hmm. ensuring, you know, that you are able to at least theoretically communicate a clear trajectory of where you'd like your students to end up. Um, and also it allows for uh, you to show the, the students the community that you are attempting to bring into the room um, mm-hmm. knowing well enough that community, you know, the things of the outside world are already going to push in. Um, mm-hmm. and so how do we engage those things in real time? So, yeah. you know, talk about, uh, you know, what it's like to have to make a decision on the things that you include and the things that you exclude, because I, you know, as a, I remember, especially being a doe eyed graduate student, you know, or, you know, I, I look at a syllabus and go, oh my gosh, you know, they didn't include yeah. fill in the countless number of books and articles and music and whatever that's not in there. And so my initial feeling is, are you saying that's not important? Like, how do you, how yeah. do you help, yeah. you know, facilitators yeah. come up with, you know, their, their statements back to students surrounding that kind of stuff? Sure. Right. So <laughs> I think if you ask, so let's take a ginormous step back, right? So we have these questions of truly what is a syllabus? Or if you were to ask your students, you know, when somebody says the word syllabus, what do you think? Most nine times out of 10, people are going to yawn. Like, like truly it's like, oh, great. Here's this document I got to go through. It's right. obligatory. And, you know, frankly, for, I think for, for most students that I've spoken with, um, the most important piece is probably, you know, what are the assignments? What's the grading structure? And, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, what's your attendance policy, right? Like those are, right. right. Do I have to come to class? Do I? Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) You know, and that's just me being, being honest. Right. Um, I think if I were to ask a lot of students, um, there'd be some variation of, of those three or four points. Um, so I think there, there's different ways to think about a syllabus, right? So it's not, um, a learning contract, right? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, a syllabus is a learning contract. And, and my f- initial instinctual reaction is, so you're telling me a lot of what students are supposed to get out of this experience is transactional. I show up, you show up, we talk about X, you get this, I get this, and we go on our separate ways. Like that's, that's really what we're going to reduce this to. Um, so I never liked the idea of a syllabus being, um, being a learning contract, it, I never found it as being productive. I never found it as being right. helpful. Um, you know, for me, it is really about, um, it is about learning. What are we trying to get out of this experience? What are, is this? Right. Um, it's a framework for learning is how I would describe a syllabus first and foremost. Um, it's going to be a structured experience. There's no question, but if we can get this framework, um, you know, into, into practice. Um, I think what we're then saying is that this experience is going to be dynamic. We're saying that learning is something that involves actors both within and outside the classroom. And I think, frankly, we can say that the syllabus is an evolving document. And I say that because culture and life, um, knowledge, research, everything that underpin what we think is knowledge at the time and that is reified in this moment when we put it on a piece of paper and present it to student, all of that evolves. Right, right. 
So there's no question, right. even the beliefs and values of, you know, that underpin what we think is learning certainly evolve. Um, the second part, again, you know, we have to make, I, I do mean this word, we as a collective, we, anybody who's putting together a syllabus, we make these very subjective decisions on what is included and what is um, excluded. And we go through this process. There's certainly trade-offs. And this is where sometimes a syllabus can feel like a contradiction. I'm trying to include things. And by its very nature, I've got to exclude things at the same time. The challenge becomes, how do I, how do I construct something that doesn't do both? Um, mm. So that's the part, again, this idea of treating a syllabus as an evolving document. Um, so how do I approach it? One, um, what are the core questions that you're really trying to ask in this class? I'm a very inquiry-based person. Um, what are the core questions? What do you hope students actually get out of the experience? And here I'm not talking about, you know, for, for most classrooms, um, not necessarily specific skills, but is it more something related to reasoning? Is it something that's really related to, I don't know, 19th century literature? Is it really, even in certain philosophy classes, is it really learning how to ask the right question? Like, like truly at the end of the day, what are the three or four most important things that you get out of this experience? Um, and then based on that, three or four things, organize around those three or four things. So if you're coming up with a syllabus that is organized thematically, so... Um, and if you had to break off each of those three or four things into several weeks, um, you know, find, um, readings, activities, experiences that map onto and address those questions, um, from different angles and address them substantively. Um, and honestly ask, ask yourself why you're including, um, a certain body of knowledge over another, um, or why you feel constrained to stick to a certain field, whether if you're teaching, I don't know, let's say a sociology class or a social studies class, um, is there someone who isn't here that can explain something better than what I presently have? Mm. You know, and, and if the yeah. answer is yes, then by all means include them. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and that's the part of it again, where, um, to, to borrow a very Gramscian notion, um, there are very hegemonic forms of knowledge that people just consider the canon and that we use all the time. But I think the, the problem with that approach, quite frankly, is that we exclude um, so many people. We limit the range of possibilities. We, we limit who's represented. We limit um, even what we allow our students to explore simply right. just because of who's not represented um, as a body of knowledge. Um, so there, so in the, in the actual guidebook itself, I'll give you some very concrete examples of, uh, different outlets and people that are, I think are absolutely worth checking out. There's a great organization called site black women, um, whose sole, um, one of their main emphasis, 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 emphasis. Thank you. Sorry. Conjugation. <laughs> You're good. You're good. <laughs> you know, but, but truly like, verb. thank you, brother. Thank you. You know, but, but what do you, what do you do, you know, in this context where, um, you know, black women have been marginalized and sidelined in scholarly mm. debates yeah. and the, yeah. 
message that's being delivered is, yeah, that's great. You can publish, but your body of knowledge doesn't matter or your exactly. experience doesn't matter. Exactly. Or, you know, I've heard this said succinctly in other spaces where you're essentially saying that you aren't a reliable narrator of your own experience. Exactly. Um, exactly. So that's absolutely another place folks could look. Um, after the Charleston massacre, um, there were a, several folks on Twitter, um, and I'm names are slipping me, so I apologize for not having names down, but there's the Charleston syllabus. Um, and I believe it was Dylan Roof, uh, was the, um, individual who was responsible for murdering. That is uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. He's the perpetrator. Yeah. Um, there is also, um, in, uh, um, every single word spoken by a person of color in mainstream film. Again, it was a, I think started as a very fun, interesting project. Um, that turned out to actually show that, you know, in a lot of uh, movies that are presented to uh, the world that come out of Hollywood, how little um, people of color speak in films and what yep. roles people, uh, what people of color take in these films. And so, yep. again, it's anything from Harry Potter, you know, like these things that are very mainstream. Right. Um to even historical examples. Uh, Gone with the Wind is another one. Um, and so I guess the underlying point I'm encouraging scholars to and, and teachers to look at this closely because essentially at the end of the day, the readings and the authors that you assign is important because knowledge is not neutral. Nope. How we present this kind of information, it's not neutral. Knowledge is subjective. It's constructed within um, power relations. And there's this very old saying that people... I think sometimes forget is that knowledge is power. Yeah. And oftentimes marginalized voices are ignored. Um, there's another example, um, people of color in European art history, again, started off, I think as a side hustle and is very much making a um, important point that people of color, black folks, um, uh, uh, people from the Middle East, uh, indigenous Americans who were, um, uh, how do I would just uh, transported against their will to the European context very much are alive and, um, contributing to European art history. But yet when you look at the presentation of art history and how it's framed, it's always, you know, Michelangelo, um, yep. Raphael, we talk a lot about Florence. There's the Dutch masters. We talk about France. Um, yet, you know, black and brown folks, uh, people from the Middle East, indigenous Americans are absolutely there. And another place to check out, just because it's a fabulous resource, is the syllabi series over at Public Books. Um, so those are, again, there's a, the lot, specific of, there's a lot of stuff out there to really yeah, the consume. Uh, Absolutely. Um, another one is, again, just making material that's relevant and speaks to your students. Again, these common cultural points that, you know, even if your students don't read everything, which they're probably not, and that's okay. Um, but what is it, where are these moments that they can actually um, contribute to the conversation? So exactly. that's all off the top of my head. Sorry, I, I, went, I, I was think, on I was on a line there for a moment. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. I think that's actually really great that you talk about that. Um, 
just because, you know, even down to landing on the, you know, your students might not read everything. I know for a fact that I have gone back to syllabi that I had from undergrad mm. to inform work that I've done 10 years later yeah. because I, I needed a particular idea that I wasn't, I didn't have access to, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I think that there's a point where, you know, as a student, you mature and you make sense of the world in a particular way. And mm. you qu aren't quite, you're developing, you're developing. And so I think the the beauty of a syllabus is that as a living document, it actually has a life of its own after it's left your hands. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that we, we oftentimes uh, sell ourselves short on because we expect that every lesson will be learned in front of us as mm. teachers and as educators. And we are not quite, it goes back to very much the wait and see thing. You know, yeah. you plant the seed. And even if you get a yield in the first year, you yeah. know, the yield the following year is going to be, you know, tenfold. And the year after mm -hmm. that, maybe a hundredfold. And you won't ever know yeah. how significant it can be unless you plant the seed. Yeah. And so that's the beauty and the, you know, the most important part of the syllabus. And also, you know, I, I for one, believe very much in adding lines to the syllabus that say things to the fact like, this is what I'm capable of seeing. This mm -hmm. is the framework and view that I come from. Please add, talk to me, bring up other things that we could add this in this thing together. Um, because I think that that also gives an opportunity for, you know, you as an educator to become a student from your students. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I want to I cite Dr. Anne-Marie Makulu and Dr. Joseph Winters at Duke University. Uh, they have a class called... Um, uh, moments in black radical theory that they did just this, you know, we talked about the black experience, um, both here in the United States, but also most notably in South Africa, um, mm. and throughout, you know, different portions of continental Africa, as well as little uprisings and in, in, in protests that happened in Britain and in France. And one of the things that was really quite beneficial to me as a student was their uh, their openness at the very beginning of class? The very first or second week, we had an entire conversation surrounding, you know, the syllabus and the norms surrounding it. And one of the norms mm. that that we had was, if you have something different, yeah, bring it to the table. Yeah, let's talk about it. And you know, that was one of the things that was really helpful for us as, as students because there's a lot of buy-in in that classroom. One, but secondly, there was a, a great opportunity for us all to, to kind of, you know, to, to source material. Like, you know, there'd be something that's like, hey, has everybody seen this thing that was written by, you know, Robin D.G. Kelly three yeah. days ago? And folks are like, no, I haven't seen it. And like, it would just be <laughs> out. It was like over listservs or whatever, and it would show up in the syllabus, mm -hmm. not necessarily ahead of schedule, but retroactively so that we had a document of the things that we had mm -hmm. had an opportunity to discuss. Absolutely. Um, and, and I keep that syllabus. That syllabus is a near and dear syllabus. And I have made a point to start buying the books off that, mm -hmm. you know, there were, there, you might read a section of a book that we had a copy of something. So we didn't have to actually have the, the text itself. Yeah. But like we, you know, my partner and I have made a point to buy a lot of those books because those we're, we're talking about deep, you know, black thinkers that mm -hmm. are all over the world that I had no yeah. idea about. 
um, and that she had no idea about. So yeah. that's, that's, and we're doing the same thing within, you know, the Latinx side of things, trying to find the same kind of, of thinkers who are not necessarily influenced by yeah. uh, the colonization of, of themselves. Like, how do we get to the root of some of these thoughts? And it's, it's from syllabies that we've had that have been, you know, made available to us over time. So I, I definitely want to leave that little nugget into the world, you know, trust that your syllabus does other things that you may not ever know that it's going to do. Just mm -hmm. trust, trust. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can imagine, I think for a lot of people, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of this where you, you take a syllabus from a class that you had to take, you buy a book and you actually never take it out of its wrapper. You know, like, oh, like, yeah. like, 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 like truly, then what's the point? Like, like if, if exactly, exactly, you know, we create these documents, we don't consider, um, what they could be. We have right. an idea about what they are, what they have been in the past, and we just replicate it. And it's sort of like, like, why, why, why not take a leap? Um, right. And, right. and give students the ability. So in this, in this, you know, in the example that you provided, um, being able to take something that was relevant and happening in the moment and taking the same underlying questions, probably going into the same general direction, and leaving it open to interpretation, to feedback, to being honest about like, hey, if you've got something to offer, put it on the table. Um, and I think there's a certain kind of humility there that is um, that is really rare. Humility just because, hey, I know a bunch. There's a lot going on in the world. I don't right. know everything. And I'm not to presuming that I have a, a particular topic or area covered from every single angle. Um, right. And in this right. case, one of the things that, um, just as a sidebar, one of the things that Duke is really great at is um, is a study of global blackness. And mm. so you have these um, varied and different uh, experiences that share points of commonality. Uh, historically, culturally, there's a lot of, a lot of borrowing, um, a lot of influencing in different ways. Um, right. In the yeah. Latinx experience, the word diaspora comes up quite a bit. Right. Um, right. 1492 certainly looms large in the historical imagination, but it again opens up a way of making things relevant to students that gives them right. a certain say in the general direction. Um, and I think that's awesome, by the way. I'd love to take that class. <laughs> oh, like, uh, oh, my gosh, man. That, that was one of the highlights of my career as a grad student was that course. I it kicked my but mm -hmm. it kicked my tail. But I, going back to the statement of patience, you know, I I had to one as a student be patient with myself, but two, you know, as I'm I'm more than positive if you ask, you know, Dr. Makulu or you know Dr. Winters, you know, as <laughs> yeah. instructors, they yeah. had to be patient with us because there were a lot of times where things that we were reading we couldn't wrap our heads around, you know, yeah. we, we were reading, you know, uh, ontological studies of things. Yeah. We were reading oh, about the poetics of things. You know, we read a lot of Fred Moten, uh, you know, doc, mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, that's, you have a, you have a basically, you know, an ontological poet writing black radical theory in practice. Like how do you actually apply this knowledge in a space that is meaningful um, yeah. you know, so it, it, you know, we're reading Audre Lorde, uh, we were like, that's, that's, we were having conversations 
And we were the one of the requirements was for us to put things in conversation. And you have to learn mm. how to do that. I mean, that's that's a very specific process. And, you know, very, I, I think that I as a student had to be comfortable with the fact that I was going to be bad at something. Because the mm. only way you get good at it is to be bad at it. You don't, you don't get, you know, Gillespie without him sucking originally like that's oh wait wait. are we talking about dizzy gillespie because if we're talking about yes. jazz and trumpet okay thank you thank you yes Same sorry line. sorry Go sorry on. uh yeah I, I made forgive me you'll, you'll forgive us we both are jazz connoisseurs and really like yep. it and yep. so there may be some random asides um shout out kamasi washington right now anyway uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah like you don't get the brilliance of people without them being bad at things initially, even prodigies have to be bad at something initially. That's, mm -hmm. that's how they establish who they or the thing that they're hungry to figure out about themselves. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I just, you would have loved that class. You would, yeah. and it's being offered this semester, just FYI. I'm, <laughs> I, you know, as, as awesome as that sounds, uh, after, I don't even know how many years. I'm good. I'm good. But I, <laughs> send me that syllabus. You know, but, I will but, do it, that. But, but it raises an interesting question, right? Like, and I think that this, you know, to be frank, is something that's been under the, under the surface of what we've been going back and forth on, is truly, where do you think most learning happens? Mm. Because I would argue, mm. frankly, like it's not in the classroom. It's really not. Like it's I not. think, I, I think we we put down seeds, we structure all of this stuff to plant, mm -hmm. and it's not. And and again, this is Cisco's like theory hypothesis. I'm sure so, you know. I feel like we need a sound when you go into Cisco's theories. <laughs> Message. <laughs> um, I'm uh, any, ignore me, but anyways, um, you know, I, I really think you know we plant seeds, and it's not until life experience or something happens yes. that shows whatever it is that we were learning in a structured environment happens in real life. Exactly. Um, and we all have these moments. Um, and to me, that that's when it really happens. And I think that's where the snowball effect, where this idea slowly begins to pick up momentum, slowly begins to evolve, slowly becomes internalized and very slowly takes on a life of its own. Um, I, I don't think the vast majority of learning happens in a classroom. It happens through experience. And that experience has to be in dialogue with something. And I think my biggest hope is that... Um, the structured environment plays a role in that process because if so, um, the work carries on. The work absolutely carries on. Literally, I don't, I don't know what it is. I just wake up and crush it, man. Waking up and crushing it in the morning. Yeah, I could see why. Some people are like, you need to tone it down. I'm like, no, baby. You need to raise whatever it is that you're doing five levels to... Because I, I, I see where you're at. And I'm just like, how do you... What are you? You know? <laughs> how, do you, how, do you how do you do a little bit more? Just, just a little more. Just a little yeah, more. Yeah, you know? I don't ask for much. I just ask for, you know, whatever this is. Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard... You can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, 
a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.